welcome to the European Football Show on the World Football Index. I'm your host, Alan Feely, and I'm joined today by Jasmine Baba and John O'Sullivan. Jasmine, how are you? I am good. Um, it's been a quite lethargic weekend of both football and just everything else, I feel like. I feel like everyone's lockdown is really dragging them down now. I don't know about you guys. Absolutely, yeah. Saturday for me was a low point. I was kind of just thinking like, I was just struck by the whole, you know, interminable nature of this lockdown, like, and it was kind of just irritating me. And then I kind of got back on uh, on track pretty quickly. But uh, John, how are you? How are things out west? <laughs> They're all good, yeah. Uh, another exciting month in lockdown inbound, so uh, that will be fun. I'm going to make soup today, though, so that's, uh, that's probably a highlight of my week. Oof, what kind of soup is it? I think it's just going to be whatever's left in the fridge thrown in and hand-blended to make some kind of amorphous liquid that would be hot and potentially nice tasting. Sounds good. At least we are in February now, so the nights are getting shorter, the days are getting longer and all that. So hopefully there'll be an end to this uh, lockdown thing as the spring kind of matures properly. But um, but anyway, real life wasn't that interesting at the moment, or isn't that interesting at the moment, but football certainly is. There's lots of football on at the moment. Um, every day, it seems, there's something else happening or something else going on. Um, some interesting storylines this week for sure across Europe a uh, big one obviously was Man United Arsenal uh, the nil all draw uh, Roy Keane was quite scathing post game kind of accusing United players of being afraid to challenge for the title being afraid to kind of mount a proper run and not having the kind of conviction to really push on uh, he kind of said that they're always talking about you know delaying a project uh, to next season or whatever, preparing for next season. But my argument in this year, that's so irregular with, you know, Liverpool not having centre-backs, Man City not having a striker. There's a real opportunity there for a club from the outside, say, to kind of push for, I don't know, a top four finish or even push for the title. So I think this season is kind of so irregular that it should be used as such, if that makes sense. What do you think, John, about this game from a Liverpool perspective and from a United perspective? Or for Arsenal perspective, any of it? It was, um, I think it probably shows the newfound uh, kind of tougher kind of a spine that Arsenal have. I think they were probably unfortunate not to win it. Yeah, but they they look so much more solid now. They have a lot of nils in their conceded goals record in recent weeks. So I think... That was probably Arteta's first priority this season was to add a bit more sturdiness to them. And they signed Gabriel. That was a big step towards that. And the same with Thomas Partey. Um, probably, I think maybe a draw is a slightly fair result. I mean, Arsenal hit the bar with Lacazette's free kick and they had one or two other decent openings. But then again, United had that Cavani chance, which they ought to have scored. I'm sure Arteta would probably reflect on the fact that Bruno Fernandes was absolutely blessed not to be sent off for that challenge on uh, Granite Shaka, which didn't even get a VAR intervention for some reason. But uh, I think Arsenal can be probably happier with this result than United, even though they were at home. Um, again, it's uh, Roy Keane, which is something that you mentioned earlier, kind of tore into the United players saying they were afraid of, uh, afraid of a title challenge. And there's probably a kernel of truth in that when you look at their results in all of these big six games. They still haven't beaten anybody from the traditional big six. And there's been, I think there's been either three or four nil all in those stretch of games. So I think United will probably bank on trying to defeat the teams from uh, lower down the table this season and see where it takes them because they're running out of big six fixtures to win at this stage. Yeah, for sure. Um, I think that 
you're given the Arsenal missing so many kind of key players, it really is an opportunity missed for United in terms of pushing on to that next level. But definitely a good result for Arsenal. Uh, Jasmine, what do you think about Arsenal's kind of recent shift? It seems the talk of crisis is kind of petered out now and thoughts are kind of turning more to kind of quiet optimism almost. Yeah, I think Arsenal looked like a team without like three of their best players and you could argue two of their key players in Saka and Turney. It just to have that lack of the left side just kind of diminished by injury slash quarantine that it really affected them and also probably highlights what they may need um, today in the transfer deadline day um, on that left side. But it, it was nice to see Martinelli come back into the squad once again, seeing how we can deal without players. I mean, yes, it was a draw in the last two home games against Man United. We've won two now, but you know, it, you can only deal with what's in front of you. And that's another clean sheet, which, you know, United did have their chances. They were lucky to still have 11 men. So, yeah, probably it all evened out in the end. I, it would be nice to see more of Martin Odegaard in the coming weeks. He did well when Smith Rowe came off. Um, and it's good to manage that workload especially if someone, well, both of them so young, but especially ML Smith-Rowe. He's certainly an interesting player, Smith-Rowe, and it's, I think it's going to be interesting to see how he responds to the kind of, you know, the threat of Odegaard, you could say. I think the truly great players can raise their game when competition comes in, while the lesser players might kind of be almost slighted at the fact that they're being pushed down a bit. Um, I think it's quite interesting to see how that will develop in the coming months. Um, but elsewhere in the Premier League, Liverpool had an interesting week. Um, the Spurs game, John, what are your thoughts on that? And Mo Salah scored two very good goals. The Spurs game felt like a release of such pent-up frustration that has lasted like well over a month. Um, it was Liverpool's first good performance in, yeah, again, well over a month. Their first goals in probably five Premier League games. Um, it was a very impressive performance all around. I kind of feel a little bit smug and justified because my suggestion that moving Thiago out of the sixth position and further up the field seemed to have borne some kind of fruit and Liverpool looked far more threatening and more fluid. Um, Tottenham, I thought, were quite meek. Um, They set up uber defensively and kind of, you know, this is a Liverpool team that's as vulnerable as they're going to be. I mean, the second half, they played with Jordan Henderson, a centre midfielder, and Nat Phillips, a player who championship clubs passed up on last summer in the heart of their fence. And Spurs barely mustered a shot on target apart from their one goal they did score, which was like a wonder goal and not really anything to do with any like in-depth attacking play. So uh, from a Liverpool perspective, much, much better, really encouraging. And for Spurs, it kind of seems to have started kind of a tailspin, which continued last night with a defeat to Brighton. I thought that. Uh, I thought just to play like that in your home patch against a vulnerable Liverpool team was, you know, very, very fatalistic and meek. Yeah, certainly. And how important do you think the Thiago shift has been in this past week, you could say? Because, like, in my perspective, um, you know, playing as a low block, it makes no sense to play Thiago so deep because he's going to control the game anyway. Like, Liverpool are already going to be controlling the game. Um, but when he's playing against a lesser team, you could say who's going to sit back against Liverpool as opposed to a team who's going to go at them kind of toe to toe. I think that it makes sense for him to be in the final third where he can hurt opponents as opposed to deep, where he's almost kind of wasted. Do you think? 
Yeah, exactly. Like when Thiago was playing at the number six, that's an area of the pitch that invariably teams surrender to Liverpool in an attempt mm. to, you know, sit in their low block and to be compact. So it was basically him just like wandering into this massive crevice of space and, you know, trying to pick passes to players who were double or triple marked by the team's low block and, you know, not really distorting their defensive alignment. But when you play him as a number eight, then he's more between the lines and he can break the opposition's uh they can break their shape and you can get on the half turn and then suddenly things can open up. And that's what happened. It was interesting. Liverpool kind of played, it was kind of like a 4-4-2 diamond or a box midfield. So you had Thiago and Firmino both offer, offering themselves as number 10s and giving that option between the lines and progressing the ball via that route. And then it's no coincidence that Trent Alexander-Arnold, I feel, started to look much better when he wasn't the main fulcrum of the team's attack and there was other options and then he could join the play higher up the pitch. I mean, previously his issue had been just kind of spamming speculative crosses from weird angles into the box onto the forehead of giant center halves. But all of a sudden now he could get on the ball in better positions that hurt the opposition. And I think a lot of that has to do with uh, Firmino and Thiago being so comfortable accepting the ball in areas of the pitch that are going to hurt the opponents. Whereas previously, like I mentioned, Thiago was just getting the ball from the center halves and then passing really to static players with no real no real ability to hurt the opposition. Mm. And Jasmine, you wrote an interesting piece during the week about Liverpool's tactical shifts and how they've kind of altered in this past few days, if you could say. Um, what, what did you make of this tactical changes that you kind of identified in the piece? I mean, as John was saying, it it's just brought out a lot more of Thiago and Trent Alexander-Arnold, especially now that he's being utilised in this sort of way. Um, that diamond shape that they had a little bit against Tottenham and even a more definitive diamond shape against West Ham basically nullified West Ham to such a point that you wouldn't even realise Liverpool were missing their first-choice centre-backs. Um, it, it's a great way to take control of the game and it, especially build on that performance against Tottenham. I think against Tottenham, it also built that confidence as well, that kind of mental level to play in this way. Um, but yeah, the deep runs, and you could see against West Ham, the changes they made that helped them tactically, that um, even though Thiago could make the deep runs in midfield, that you just needed a bit more of a dynamic player to do it better, which really broke open West Ham after that first half. So um, well, what I was going to ask John is how he felt about the West Ham performance without Firmino and using Shakiri as Klopp did. And would you like to see more of that in the future? Yeah, um, it was a very interesting shift. Uh, Shakiri. At times, it was like he was a number 10 in uh, in a diamond. And at times, it was like he was nearly the focal point in the 4-3-3 with Origi and Salah kind of drifting in from, from the wings. Um, yeah, it's something I would like to see more of because I think it suits our personnel an awful lot. I'd also factor Naby Keita into the equation. I think he'd be very good as one of those uh, number eights on the side of the diamond. I think he has a lot to offer there in terms of dynamism and ball progression. Also, uh, I think an underrated part of his game is what he offers uh, defensively. He's a very proactive presser, very good at pinching the ball back high. So I think it's something that they could look to do much more often going forward. And it just keeps opposition guessing because 
for now the last four years, Liverpool have, you know, rigidly played a 4-3-3 formation. It's not that it hasn't worked. It clearly has, but sometimes you have to guard against stasis creeping in. So I think the ability to show that they can play in numerous styles and numerous shapes is uh, very encouraging. I think you have to evolve, don't you? Otherwise, you, you get stale, especially when you're defending a title. It's very difficult to to maintain a w- winning rhythm because teams do eventually find ways of playing against you. I thought that um, the Milner incidents were interesting because when he came off, for instance, he was kind of giving it to Klopp a bit. He wasn't too happy about being taken off. And I think that kind of showed the pressure they're under, maybe, in terms of like they, they wanted to follow up on the Spurs result with another victory. And I think he was kind of mindful of that. But then I thought when the goal happened immediately afterwards, you could see the relief in both his and Klopp's faces. That was kind of quite an interesting moment. And he also said to uh, Jordan Henderson that if he continues to play that well as centre-back for the rest of his uh, for the rest of the game or the rest of the next few weeks, he's going to be there for the rest of his career, which I thought was pretty funny. Um, but h- how important, John, do you think is this kind of competitive element within the squad? and the ability of players like Milner and Henderson, for instance, to kind of have the character to force through this difficult period? Oh, it's huge. And it's really, you can really tell because of the anti-stadia and you can hear how loud certain players are. And without Virgil van Dijk, there is like a vacuum in the back line for players who are quite lippy and quite chatty. You get it from Robertson, but in terms of centre-halves, the other ones are quite quiet. I mean, Joel Matip seems like kind of an introverted person, I don't know how strong Fabinho's English is, for example. So then you feel that there isn't maybe so much communication and leadership in that role. So Henderson has gone back there and he's been largely superb. I really worried about him against the aerial tread of Antonio and Suchek. But in fairness, he dealt with it very well. Um, his ball progression was brilliant. People will remember he got a hockey assist against Spurs with that pass for Mane on the stroke at halftime. And then he'd done similar twice uh, yesterday. It didn't result in goals, but it wasn't to do with him. He played a lovely ball to Salah twice. One of them resulted in a Shakiri shot being um, being blocked. So in terms of his ball progression, it's been excellent. And I always think the justification with playing him there is his ability to hold the offside line because he has, he has a recovery pace in case it doesn't go well, but he also has a communication to organize a line and conjole others into keeping it uh, compact and to keeping it in shape. So... In that regard, I think he's done really well there. Um, and Milner, Milner is 35 and he's played three games in the last week and more or less he's been good in all of them. Uh, mm. he's, he is freakishly fit. Like I have no idea how someone with that much football in his legs, remember like he played for Leeds at 16, is still going and is still like so unbelievably uh, resilient and like his injury record is absolutely sterling. He is basically never injured. I think he missed maybe three or four games this season with a hamstring injury, but that's the first time since he's been at the club that I remember him breaking down and it's, it's remarkable. I think he's the kind of player that you appreciate more as you get older. Like he's not fantastic technically, Mm. but he is so intelligent. He is so adaptable and they often say that availability is one of the best attributes. And in terms of that, he's probably one of the better players in the world. He's he's a cyborg. Yeah, I think he's a real model pro, isn't he? And I think also, like, both he and Henderson are teetotal. They're completely dedicated to their craft. But uh, Henderson is actually somebody who I'm really interested in. I really have liked him for a long time. There's some great stories about Roy Keane and him, their relationship, because Roy Keane was the one who actually brought him through um, at Sunderland. He gave him his first start. But I think Keane was watching a reserve game before Ken Henderson broke into the team and they lost. It was a very, very bad result. I think it was to a lower league team or something. 
And Keane went in the dressing room after the game and gave them a, a bit of a bollocking, basically. And he kind of said, like, do any of you actually believe that you can play for the Sunderland first team? And there was complete silence. But Henderson put up his hand and said, yeah, I think I can. And the next day, Henderson was training with the first team. And before long, he had his debut. And then following up from that, because we know Keane is a man who doesn't give praise lightly. Um, I think Keane was with Carragher at the 2012 uh, European Championships, I think it was, um, doing punishes together for ITV. And they were walking the streets anyway, in the, one of their breaks and stuff. And I think Liverpool had just signed Henderson there or thereabouts. And Carragher asked him, he was like, well, what do you think of him? Like, you know, do you think that he's worth the money? Is he good enough for Liverpool? And Keane just said, he'll be all right. Trust me, he, this fellow will be all right. And I think he's been proved right in that, you know. So quite a shrewd judge of players, you could say. Roy is really, isn't he? But, um, but yeah, go, coming on back to, uh, we touched on Spurs' woes. Uh, Jose Mourinho's come under a bit of heat recently. And Miguel Delaney tweeted a funny tweet saying that, you know, maybe all the hot takes from November that Mourinho is going to prove everybody wrong at Spurs is actually proven to be wrong itself, that he is the same Mourinho who, you know, ended quite sourly at Chelsea, ended quite sourly at Manchester United as well. Uh, Jasmine, what are your thoughts on the situation at Spurs and with Mourinho? Apparently he had an argument with um, Serge Aurier at halftime that resulted in Aurier driving away from the stadium, which is quite a bad sign, to be honest, I think. Um I think it's typical Mourinho, isn't it? It's just happening again. Everyone thinking, oh, he's got a new this, that. He's changed. He's stayed away from the game and all of this. And he's come back and maybe for a month or two looked like a different person. And once again, it's all come crashing down. Um, I saw a stat that, well, two stats Tottenham in their last two games have only had 0.55 xG. I think it was it was I can't remember which player, but had more xG. One single player had more xG in Tottenham's two last games in like 90 minutes. And then the other was I think Tottenham have only gotten what was it 33 point yeah 33 points from their from their 20 games, which was lower than any points total at the same stage from Pochettino so it's normally when you sack someone like Pochettino and you bring back someone who's going to win win you something you normally see an improvement you normally want an upgrade and in the league it just doesn't look like an upgrade the kind of personnel they can't complain that they've not really had the transfers that Jose Mourinho once he has they've got a good team and once again he just doesn't know how to break from his ultra defensiveness saying all this I wouldn't be surprised if they then win 1-0 against Chelsea their next match on Thursday but there's no reason why Tuchel's Chelsea won't spank them <laughs> yeah I think it's interesting because Spurs actually have a good stable of you know defenders like they, they have a strong back four and it's the same back four that was grinding at results in the first half of the season you could say so it's kind of strange what do you think has gone wrong at Spurs John? Well obviously it wasn't the case Everly really only played half the Liverpool game but missing Harry Kane is a big part of it but I just think a lot of it is they're cutting their nose to spite their face with just these uber defensive tactics I mean against Liverpool it was a back five with Matt Doherty who's probably never played left wing back in his life in that position just to try and nullify uh, Liverpool's wing back so I just think this 
this way of playing where it's just so it's so unambitious and it's so uh it's almost cowardly because if you look at Spurs' squad, there's some brilliant attacking talent there. There's Son Young Min, there's a Tangai in Dembele, there's Lo Celso, there's there's Lucas Mora, who is like <laughs> who remembers scored a hat trick in the Champions League semi-final for them. I mean, they have an awful lot of firepower. I think sometimes the narrative with Spurs is kind of like this poor mouth, oh, we can't compete with the other guys financially but when you look through their squad there's such an amount of talent and I thought to myself when the season began like in this of all campaigns that they have a very good shot at top four just because of the personnel they have but uh, I think Mourinho is really holding them back in a lot of ways I mean when you're you know you play so defensively the trade-off is okay that your attack mightn't function as well that's fine but when you still can't defend that well despite the fact that you're playing so defensively you're like, why not just take off the handbrake and at least try and go for it? Because look, the way it is, you're losing anyway. So why not try and play to the team's strengths? And I think the team's strengths are an attack when you look at the personnel. So I think Mourinho has a lot to answer for. But as Jasmine said, I wouldn't be at all surprised if they beat Chelsea on Thursday. It's yeah. the way this season is working so far. Interesting game on Thursday for sure. Um, kind of a clash, you could say, of two managers. One maybe, you know... Uh, kind of of the new kind of you know super modern german school of coaches you know schooled under ralph ragnick uh very kind of process based whereas the other one is kind of very much not old school but of that you know 2000s era you could say and very much results based uh so like what what do you think jasmine of this clash of personalities and tushil is a very interesting character he's a vegan you know he's kind of very like modern in his thinking and like you wrote a piece as well touching on some of the tactical improvements that you think he's made since he took over at Chelsea uh so I just wanted to ask you what you thought about that I thought it was interesting somebody said that uh you know people were talking about Frank Lampard for instance saying that he is no less qualified for the Chelsea job than Thomas Tuchel but if you actually compare the amount of years they've spent coaching it's quite quite a difference I'm sorry I'm speechless for the person who actually put that as a suggestion that is ridiculous um I I mean out of everything it doesn't matter how long you coach for I mean it is like experience is key but when you look at the actual tactics Frank Lampard had he didn't know how he didn't know how to set up his structure just a working structure. He, as John said in previous podcasts, he had eleven individuals that were basically in a dog eat dog world on the pitch. Whereas Tuchel's come in, he's not had that much time with the team, and you know he can't really change that much overnight. Um, but he's already made them look structurally better. Um, they have this. It looks like a back three, and they're normally in a back three in possession. Um, but it's like they're playing like provisionally in a back four. But they should, they will most likely stick with that tactic that you've seen in the last two games um, against Tottenham because it's worked well. They've kept two clean sheets. Um, they got their first win against Burnley. I think there was just a few changes in personnel to that the win against Burnley compared to the draw against Wolves just to see how the different kind of just basically tinkering with the mechanism, see which personnel work better. Um, Alonso looked a little bit more comfortable on the left side against Burnley than Chilwell against Wolves. Um, 
I think that's only because Alonso's more used to that kind of structure. So it was no surprise to see him get a goal. Um, but, you know, I think we'll just see more of what we have seen structurally just because he can't really inflict so much in a short space of time. Plus, as we know, Tottenham will go ultra defensive. If they're defending with like a back three slash five, then you want to match that with the kind of back three in possession. So Tuchel will most likely go with that. It'll be interesting to see who he picks because he obviously gave Havertz most of the night off. He said he's played a lot of minutes. He's kind of higher risk of getting an injury to give him a rest. So I expect Havertz to start against Tottenham. Yeah, great goal from Max Alonso too, wasn't it? Really good finish and quite a pointed celebration too, I thought, kissing the badge after um, Frank Lampard kind of ostracised him a bit after they had a falling out. Uh, John, what are your thoughts on Thomas Tuchel's first week in charge of Chelsea? Yeah, some very interesting um, tactical points. Um, the repurposing of Callan Hudson-Odoi as a right winger slash right wing back, just right-sided person, thing, player, um, has been interesting because I don't want to pigeonhole him into one role because, you know, he's kind of just all up that flank, uh, has been really good so far. And one thing I really enjoyed about that Burnley win was Azpilicueta's goal and... It was just like borrowed from the Sheffield United playbook of like marauding, overlapping wide center halves. And I think the way he dovetailed with Hudson Adoy there was really nice, a nice little kind of a reverse pass from Hudson Adoy. And then as Pilicata finished it brilliantly. And, you know, the fact that both wing backs got on the score sheet is a, is kind of a feather in the cap, I think, of the way Tuchel has improved Chelsea already. So uh, they'll be a very interesting team to watch until the end of the season. And, it's so concertina and so tight in the table that it's okay. It's unlikely, but I wouldn't say it's impossible that they could break into the top four because as we're all at, have been at pains to say, like their squad is excellent. This is why Frank Lampard was sacked. You know, the squad should be doing much better than what they were doing. And now they have the right kind of structure and guidance to, you know, to propel them up the table. And, you know, they're, they're probably dark horses for top four, I think. Yeah, I think so too. I think that in this season, you know, given how unusual things are, anyone who goes on a streak can really do damage. Like, I think we've seen that from Spurs early in the season. We saw it from Everton. We saw it from Villa. We saw it from United most recently. But, like, with Everton, from the Everton perspective, for instance, them losing 2 0 to Newcastle after drawing 1 1 with Leicester during the week, my, my kind of sentiment was that this season is such a opportunity for these teams, as I mentioned before, to break into something that they may not have done before, that to blow a chance like that against a team like Newcastle at home is just unforgivable, you know, very kind of poor of their character. Um, But yeah, I just think it's kind of a very bizarre Premier League season for sure. And anyone who does have a run can really do damage, you know. But uh, speaking of teams who have a run, Man City are on quite a run and it doesn't seem to be a, a streak of form. It seems to be, you know, a real kind of game-changing moment in their... In the Guardiola's reign, you could even mention, you know, in terms of revitalizing the team after the disappointment of last season, both in Europe and domestically. Um, Jasmine, what are your thoughts on Man City this season? Like, the rock-solid central defense partnership between Ruben Diaz and, and John Stones is something else, but they just seem to be very, very kind of... They seem to be a championship-winning team, don't they? 
Yeah, it's just as soon as they started picking up that that starting runs, I remember saying, "I'm, I think this is it now. Man City are just going to pull out of nowhere." And just, just like a, a couple of years ago when they went on that crazy winning streak, I think we're going to see the same again from them again. It's just, I, I don't want to. I fear them. I don't want to see them. They win grittily. They win this just. Out of all of the things that I thought Man City would do, I think nailing down their defence wasn't the thing that I had down on their list, which they mm. managed to 13 goals. We're 20 games into the season, well, for them. 13 goals is insane. I don't think I've seen it, in, and especially in the kind of weird times that we're in, that everyone just looks a bit awful. They have completely sharpened up. Maybe um, the, the the way they kind of trailed at the start of the season, it feels like now they were just conserving energy for this long bit at the end. I mean, it it will be interesting to see them when they, the fixtures start to pile up, especially with the Champions League um, and how they manage with that. Their favourites going into their Champions League game with Gladbach. Um so yeah, if let's see if they it's just that kind of defense and the goals that the shots that they're not allowing is one of a championship winning team. I think someone said once goals win you cups, strong defense wins you leagues and it's definitely mm. the route Man City are going. Yeah, I think it's testament to Guardiola isn't it because you know he's so often pegged as an IV log whereas Mourinho is a pragmatist, someone who kind of adapts to the situation. That's the narrative that's been running in football for the last, I don't know, 20 years, you could say even. But I think in reality, the opposite is actually true. Like Guardiola's ideology came from what he had available to him and how he wanted to play games. He wanted to be the protagonist. He wanted to make the best of the players he had, which were highly technical players at Barcelona, at Bayern Munich and at Manchester City. But he managed to adapt to the challenges that he's faced with and respond to them in kind and, you know, build around that in a way that Mourinho hasn't really done in his career, which is quite interesting, I think. So in reality, you could actually make a big argument that Mourinho is the uh, ideologue and Guardiola is a pragmatist. Uh, what, what are your thoughts, John, on Man City's defence and Guardiola's kind of revitalization of the team? So on Man City's defence, and these are stats that I source from Dan Kenneth on Twitter, so no open play goals conceded since October 26th at the Etihad. They've conceded 13 goals so far this season, which is nearly on par with uh, with Atletico Madrid and Diego Simeone, which is the high watermark for defences, in my opinion. And and that's even more impressive when you consider that they conceded five in one game to Leicester City and three were penalties. And they only conceded 15 shots on target in eight games in January. So that's just startling. And I know they play like a Passanaccio style of football sometimes where like you can't get the ball off them, so therefore you can't attack them. But that is still mightily impressive. Uh, I think Guardiola has somewhat been revitalized by uh, one by his new contract because there was uncertainty last year over whether or not he would uh, he would stay at City long term. But that seems to be a box off now. Uh, number two, uh, Juan Manuelito, who is his uh, new assistant manager, he was a person that uh, really influenced him in these formative times as a coach and someone he holds in high regard, obviously. And uh, I think he had some personal issues with like family members last year being sick and stuff. So that obviously had an effect on them. So with all of those things kind of cleared up, you can see kind of Guardiola come back to his best. And, you know, City are more machine-like than they've been in previous years where 
it was like their attack was their main weapon and their defense was maybe somewhat of a weak spot, but they could mitigate it just because they were so good going forward and so good at keeping the ball. But now it seems so the shoe is on the other foot and they just seem to be so so solid and so rigid and you know teams are really struggling to break them down so you know fair juice to them i think at this stage they uh they're they're surely a shoe in for the title i think but then again they go to anfield this weekend and then you know if liverpool can get a result there then it might be able to open things up but i think if city avoid defeat in that game then i, I can't really see past them for the title yeah i think it's a good point he made about the assistant coach coming in Juanmalilo is someone who really inspired him in terms of his play and I think just having, you know, his ideas come into the club it really has kind of given him a new kind of source of energy because he wants to find a way of fusing his idealism with um, the need to win football matches, you know. So it's quite an interesting combination and something that Alex Ferguson did quite a bit, actually, when he was in charge of United. He would always change assistant coaches to be able to kind of inspire the players and make sure things were changed and kind of kept fresh. Um, as opposed to having the same thing every season. So it's a very good idea, I think. You mentioned Atletico Madrid. Um, they're flying in La Liga. They uh, won yesterday against Cadiz uh, 4-2. Uh, Luis Suarez scored a brace. Um, one of them was just an absolutely stunning goal, the first the first goal of the game, the 28 minute or so. It was a free kick from quite a far bit out, and he kind of twacked it right into the top corner. And he joked after the game that uh, you know he never scores free kicks, but that's because he couldn't take them at Barcelona because Messi took them all. Uh, where he did score them at Liverpool and with the Uruguayan national team as well sometimes. So uh, quite a remarkable goal and quite a remarkable game, really. Atletico are now 10 points clear of Real Madrid and Barcelona uh, going into February, which is a remarkable stat, really. Um, Real Madrid lost 2-1 uh, on, to Levante on Saturday um, to fall behind Atletico, such a distance, um, to really kind of put more pressure on Zinedine Zidane even though he wasn't actually at the game because he's tested positive for COVID-19. So his assistant, uh, David Bittoni, was there instead of him. But Madrid really are just in a strange place at the moment because, you know, just in the couple of weeks when they lose Martin Odegaard to Arsenal of their own volition and Luka Jovic to Eintracht Frankfurt, there's missing kind of ideas and energy in their team, really. You know, they're, Zidane is so reliant on the old guard that... Um, He's not giving space to younger players to come in and kind of offer competition and improve the team. You know, it's it's a very strange situation. Uh, John, what are your thoughts on Real Madrid on this, in the moment they're in at the moment? This is a pattern that keeps happening with Zidane in that he almost seems like he's on the cusp of the sack. Next thing he brings back the old guard, like you mentioned, and they pull some results together. And then he's, uh, the, the, the gun is pulled away from his temple, so to speak. But uh, I think it kind of feels different that time. I think we're in the final throws of his uh, of his Madrid tenure. Um, obviously, he wasn't at the game. Uh, Eder Militao, who is a player that has been linked away with him in a similar manner to the way Odegaard left, possibly on loan, was sent off. And uh, yeah, they were defeated. And their home record has been quite poor this season, if you even include in Europe, where uh, a Shakhtar team that were missing 10 players because of COVID turned up there and, and they won... 3-2 and it was actually kind of flattering towards Madrid the two so uh, I think he's probably yeah, in, in his, certainly his last season in that job and how that impacts things like the possibility of Kylian Mbappe going to Real Madrid in future will be interesting um, surely that a big carrot for him to move there would be Zidane who is also French Algerian and probably a hero of his growing up I mean Real Madrid are always going to be a massive pull to players 
but then possibly little things like that could you know could weaken their their pursuit of him so it'll be interesting to see how it impacts on uh what they're going to do in the summer um they always there are pains to say recently that they have no money so um whether we're going to see like an austerity version of Real Madrid going forward is going to be uh it's going to be something to look out for I think last season's title win was almost the worst thing that could have happened to them and that sounds ridiculous to say but the reason I say it is because you know last season was such a bizarre season in the way that Barca fell off the wagon towards the end uh, post lockdown and Madrid approached it like almost kind of a like a Champions League run they won 10 games in the bounce Sergio Ramos pulled them through you know almost single-handedly and I think that that kind of plastered over the cracks a bit so that they didn't recruit at all in the summer and didn't strengthen in the summer whereas Atletico obviously added a lethal goal scorer in Luis Suarez um, but yeah I think it's interesting um, all the talk in the Spanish press is that Mbappe is the deal is ready to go basically so once Mbappe gives the signal or once PSG give the signal that a deal won't be agreed between the two clubs between the two uh, sorry between the two parties between um, Mbappe and PSG then Madrid are going to go for him basically they have a war chest put aside to go for him um, I think it's highly important for the Madrid project and for their self-perception to have a Galactico and they haven't had one for quite some time given the way Eden Hazard has worked out um, so yeah I think that's only a matter of time if PSG can't agree terms with Mbappe then Madrid will go for him um, and as you mentioned you know he's of Cameroon his father is from Cameroon his mother is from Algeria so he's a very strong link to Zidane in that regard um, but yeah certainly interesting uh, elsewhere in Spain Barcelona very interesting weekend or week for Barcelona uh, given the revelation of Lionel Messi's 555 million euro salary across four years um, that he signed in 2017. And that's inclusive of uh, variables. But the interesting thing is that he's actually filled 92% of the variables. So he's made, I think it's 520 million so far or something, which is quite a pretty penny. And it's leaked quite in um, suspicious circumstances, you could say. Uh, Jasmine, what are your thoughts on Barcelona at the moment? They won last night against Athletic Club 2-1. They're actually in a very good run in La Liga, although you kind of dented a bit by their failure in the Supercopa and their struggles in the Copa del Rey. But they're actually kind of putting together a good run domestically. Uh, they're now, they were second. They're now second after winning last night. Um, what are your thoughts on the whole Messi situation and the financial problems that Barcelona are having at the moment? It does sound like they are in a bit of trouble. Um and I wonder if, yeah, I think we've said it just before coming on the pod, if Barcelona needed a bit of a scapegoat in their financial problems and, you know, probably someone around there kind of leaked Messi's contract. And I think it's unfair to pin this down on Messi's earnings for he's he is the best footballer in the world. And I don't think anyone can argue his worth or what he earns is either too much. He's done so much for Barcelona. Um, and, you know, to accrue that the debt that they have, it's around 1 billion euros, I think. It's, it's yeah, not, not down 1 to, billion. Yeah. yeah, it's not down to Messi. I mean, it's you can win trophies or not win trophies. It's just it's not enough to help that debt that Barcelona are in. And I don't know what will happen to them in the next coming years. It's not something 
small that you can put off anymore. And especially where earnings are taking a hit across the board because of coronavirus, um, that there's not much for them to to regain, um, except if they do sell Messi and get him off the books. But that's not his fault. Um, so, yeah, I heard that Messi was not happy that his contract got leaked and um, is looking to maybe fight whoever linked it. So, yeah, we'll see what drama spans out of that. Yeah, he's apparently enraged. He's uh, planning to sue uh, El Mundo, the paper that leaked it, um, and possibly also the people who had access to his contract. He wants to spark an investigation into that because it was somebody at quite a high level in the club who leaked it. And nobody else would be able to get their hands on it, basically. Um, but yeah, it's certainly interesting. Like, given that his contract expires this summer, um, they won't be able to, they won't be able to sell him, but they will be able to get his wages off the books potentially if he does leave. Which the rumor has it is that this contract leak was kind of the final straw in that regard. Barcelona have said that um, they're furious at whoever leaked it, and they're also launching legal proceedings into the investigation. But. Uh, I don't know. I think the damage is almost done for him, really. But yeah, I think it's a good point you made about um, kind of the structural problems Barcelona have been facing in the past few seasons because it's definitely true. I think that in many ways, the argument about his wages is almost kind of a moot point because he made Barcelona more money than he cost them at the end of the day. You know, And his presence is invaluable to Barcelona and it will always be invaluable to Barcelona because no matter what happens in the future, the next few seasons, he will always be the legend of the club, you know, one of the legends of the club. And he's invaluable to their branding all over the world, especially in the this the kind of era of his, his era was kind of very important for football's growth across the world, you know. So I think it's quite interesting. Um, but yeah, I think also the good point you made is that Barcelona's structural problems are kind of, have been here for quite some time in terms of the, the money they've spent that's led to this debt. And I actually think that in a way, Messi contributed to this because he was so good he kind of lifted the team so high you know especially during the 2015 treble run uh, where him and Suarez and Neymar were pivotal in kind of getting the the remarkable treble that they did win um, it's almost as if I think they succeeded so well on the pitch that they let things slide off the pitch um, in terms of structural organization in terms of player recruitment and they let quite a few mediocre players into the club paid over the odds for others and ended up with a situation where they have a bloated squad full of players like, you know, Mateus Fernandez, who are nowhere near the first team, but are on big money. You know, it's kind of Junior Furpro is another one who's kind of not first choice for Koeman by any means. They can't get rid of him. They're trying, uh, you know, Jean-Claire Todibo, another one. He was actually sent back by Benfica almost um, on a loan deal. Uh, supposed to be a two-year loan after failing at Schalke last season, as you'll know, Jasmine. Um, but yeah, big problems at Barcelona. Uh, what are your thoughts, John, on the whole situation? I just think it's so sad that Barcelona are briefing against their greatest ever player like that and trying to make him the fall guy and the patsy for their financial mismanagement. Remember, this is the club with the highest revenues in world football and they've managed to squander that really enviable position and they find themselves on the precipice of uh, bankruptcy and they're trying to make out like it's Messi's fault. I mean... Nobody put a gun to their heads and made them offer him that contract. Like you mentioned, football finances are crazy. But if you look at it in terms of what he brings to the brand and what he brings to the club, well, then, you know, he deserves his pound of of flesh, so to speak. 
uh, it's a really, really messy divorce, pardon the pun. And, uh, you know, I, I really think that is probably the straw that broke the camel's back. There was kind of renewed optimism recently that, you know, upon the election of a new president and a better structure of the club that he might stay. But at this rate, it's, it's very hard to, uh, it's very hard to see him, to see him staying. And uh, it's just now going to be interesting to see where he goes, but it's just, to me, it's a disgrace that you'd treat your greatest ever player like this. But Daniel Alves uh, foreshadowed this when he left the club in 2017, said that the way that they treat players is disgraceful. And, uh, you know, it seems to be borne out in fact now. Yeah, certainly. Luis Suarez obviously is a more recent and very obvious case too. Um, but, you know, opposite of Barcelona, you could say in terms of, you know, if Barcelona are kind of a bloated, you know, poorly run behemoth, Sevilla are a very, very impressive organization, very, very impressive team, very lean and mean. Uh, they picked up a very good 2-0 win against Ibar on Saturday after beating Val- uh, Valencia 3-0 in the Copa midweek. Um, and they look to be really quite poised to, quite poised, sorry, to put together a real strong run in the second half of the season. They were actually went above Barcelona on Saturday with their win. They went into third. And they're certainly there and thereabouts in that kind of title race. And they probably won't have enough to actually mount a serious challenge, but they certainly have enough to really compete for the Champions League places and maybe even cause an upset in the Champions League. Um, playing against uh, Sevilla for Ibar was Brian Hill, who's a very interesting young player, um, kind of an old-school wide man. Uh, he's only 19 years old, but he actually leads La Liga in nutmegs, which is a pretty good stat, I think. He's a six nutmegs, and he actually nutmegged um, Juan Horan, who plays for Sevilla, and his, his teammate next season when he returns to Sevilla, he nutmegged him during the game, and it was quite a funny moment because it kind of shows his, his self-confidence because he's not just this kind of technical wide man. He's also full of tenacity, which is a really r- rare trait in footballers in general especially young footballers, but especially uh, kind of the mercurial wide man, you could say. So one to keep an eye out for sure. He's a really interesting player. Uh, but Sevilla faced Borussia Dortmund in uh, the last 16 of the Champions League. Uh, things really are going for bad to worse for them, aren't they, Jasmine? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I don't even know how to explain it for them at the moment. Um, it's going to be a really, really tight match. Uh, Dortmund is just they won and <laughs> they actually won against Augsburg so it's not, it could have been a lot worse but um, if you look on the Bundesliga form table in like the last 10 games Dortmund are around 7th or 8th and then if you do that back from 15 games they're 7th or 8th and if you do that in the last 5 games obviously they're 7th they've not really fixed turned around their fortunes and coming into a Champions League knockout round to Sevilla, who look very stable. Is it their second best defence in La Liga? I, th- I think Dortmund will have um, uh, quite a bit of trouble trying to break them down. It's also probably problematic to see where Dortmund are still going from this. If they carry on the run that they're on, where it's just wins against really bad teams fighting relegation and they didn't even beat one of the teams in relegation places um in mines where they drew they might there's a very concerning possibility that they will miss out on any european football how can they get a new name a new coach to take dortmund forward if they're not even in europe what happens to their finances 
will they have to sell Haaland, Sancho, Bellingham to try and recuperate that? Um, mm. So it will be interesting to see. I mean, again, they've still got Haaland and etc. up front and they could smash Sevilla into a pulp, but right now <laughs> I'm not seeing it. Yeah, and do you think as well that the fact that they have such a big stadium, they're kind of hurt more than most clubs would be by the absence of fans? There's, I think home advantage in the Bundesliga is a bit different. Um, There's so many things that you need to consider when trying to figure out if home advantage is actually a thing. And um, what I'd like to say is that Bundesliga is chaotic and probably has a lower percentage of home wins with or without fans. So um, I think it's more of a lower team statistic where they miss their home fans more than someone like Dortmund or Leverkusen. The the top teams seem to manage without their fans better than the lower teams. Hmm. And I guess there's also a financial impact too, isn't there? But uh, we had a couple of interesting stories in Germany this week. Um, Andre Silva's form is really kind of picking up a notch. He's just shy of uh, Robert Lewandowski in the goal-scoring charts. Uh, Sami Khedira joined Hertha Berlin. Uh, Stuttgart finally won. How would you sum up the week in German football? Um, A good week for Bayern Munich again. I mean, but the, I think the real story is, yeah, as you said, Andre, Andre Silva is... He's still eight goals away from Lewandowski, but he's second in the top scorer um, league. And he's really propelling Eintracht Frankfurt for a Champions League spot. They're third now. No, they're fourth, sorry. They're two points behind Wolfsburg, five against Leipzig. Um, There's only six points between seventh and second in the Bundesliga, really tight still. So anyone can take it. But they've just put up such good play with um, Philip Kostic, Daichi Kamada. They've got Jovic back, and they're just they're um, on the same level as scoring goals as Dortmund at the moment, which is pretty crazy when once you think about that. And um, yeah, so again, it's all eyes on the top of the table. Hertha Berlin are, as you said. Kadir is joining Hertha and um, I don't know if that will work for them and they're in quite a bit of trouble. They're on joint points as newly promoted Armenia Bielefeld. This Kadir signing looks like just another prestige signing of theirs and it's too early to see if Pal Dardai will do anything with Hertha but I don't understand what their game plan is at the moment. As I said a couple of weeks back, they're a bit like Chelsea and where they've just bought and it looks like loads of just not really a team anymore. Um, so we'll see if Pyle Dade can get them going. I've lost count of when their last win was, but at the moment it's no win in the last five and only one draw, four losses. Hmm. Wow. Uh, and uh, just in terms of in Italy, there's a few interesting things happening. Um Milan lost 2-1 to Inter during the week uh, in the Coppa Italia. And there was a face-off between Zlatan Ibrahimovic and Romelu Lukaku. This followed on from uh, Ibrahimovic telling Devon Zapata that he scored more goals and Zapata has played games. Which is quite a harsh, harsh uh, insult, you could say. 
Uh, John, what what do you make of this battle between two former Man United strikers? Apparently, the insult that um, Ibra threw at Lukaku was to do with a, a fight they had when Ibra was at United and Lukaku was at Everton. Yeah, didn't he tell him that uh, that he would give him fifty quid for every good first touch he had? That and he basically insinuated that all Lukaku is is power and he has very little like footballing ability, which is obviously a massive like exaggeration and not true. But it's just so typical of Zlatan. And, you know, it's funny that that would make, if that is true, by the way, it's funny that that would make Lukaku so incensed because you have to think that like so many players to use a term that they use in Ireland for that are sledge each other during games and there's yeah. flying left, right and center. So it's just weird that he seems to have taken the taken a bite, which is clearly what Slatan wanted to do and <laughs> make him incensed. But uh, hopefully they can, you know, they can uh, they can make amends and you know <laughs> hug and kiss. And if they don't, maybe they can do maybe a charity boxing match at some stage, and that would be an interesting one to watch. I think Slatan is uh, he's very good at martial one of the martial arts. I can't remember which, but he has something approaching a black belt, I believe. So I'd say you probably fancy him if it came to a scrape. Um, but yeah, I'm really enjoying Serie A this season on a broader point. It's so competitive. Uh, it seems like the title is up for anyone to grab. Um, Atalanta, Lazio, Mila, the two Milans and Juve. So uh, it, it's it's one flashpoint in what has been a really exciting season there. Yeah, it certainly is an exciting season. I mean, Lukaku is interesting because he's very, I think keenly aware of how he's perceived like he's very much interested in kind of underlining his self-perception if that makes sense like he's always been talking himself as one of the best strikers in the world he's always been at pains to point that out so I think that I don't know maybe he's kind of he was sensitive to what he ever said to him but the penalty he scored afterwards is quite aggressive I don't know if you saw it but he really thumped it into the back of the net it's quite a quite a powerful shot and um, what, what do you think of it, Jasmine? Oh, it's just that there's someone took a screenshot of his run up um, before his penalty, and it's just the weirdest stance, and you can just see all the anger, rage, and frustration that goes um, <laughs> into the ball. It is, it, it, it's typical. It, I mean, it, it was nice to see and to get a win over them. It's, it's just nice to see Ibrahimovic, just the whole kind of match. It, he, again, want, wanted to make it all about him. He probably cost his team getting sent off and just making it all about him. He's the star. And it, it was just like almost like a charity boxing match, as you said, but in a football match, it's just almost Italian showboating. It, it was like the pinnacle of Italian football. Um a good story about um, Slatan. Well, not so much Slatan, but how the people of Malmo, his boyhood club, the club he grew up with, um, came from their youth. Um, basically, as one of, let's say, greatest Swedish players, um, they put a statue outside of Malmo Stadium. And since he became a part owner of a rival club, Hammerby. Um, it, it's been vandalised several times. Um, Malmo, as <laughs> anyone who's been to a Swedish football match or follows sw- Swedish football fan culture will know it's c- quite crazy. I lived in Malmo for a bit and there was once a guy who threw a corner flag at 
the opposing set of fans um, as someone threw a firework at him or like a small like firecracker. So it's quite crazy. But um, here's a list of vandalisms on the statue. Um, In 2019, white paint was sprayed on it. It was also burned with Bengal fires and threats and hateful messages written on the statue. Um, It was uh, vandalized again when the statue's leg was sewn off. Um, The the statue was sprayed with silver paint later that year. Um, The nose was sawn off and completely removed. A toe on the left foot was removed. There was a toilet seat put around the head. Um, and of January 2020, it, the statue was toppled. So, um, yeah, it's gone for the moment. I can't remember if they put it back up anywhere, but, yeah. <laughs> well, it's quite a, yeah. It's, the funniest thing, I think, is that Paul Pogba felt the need to wade in and be like, oh, it couldn't have been a racial thing because he loves me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. It's just, it's... It's just classic Ibrahimovic. It's his behavior. It's he is the star. He is the main protagonist of everyone's story. Um, so it's just just don't take him too seriously and keep him in the background. And I think everyone will will be okay. But what I must say, like like we mentioned about James Milner earlier, is he is a freak. How how he is still yeah. so effective at his age, given the amount of football he's played, given the serious injuries he's had in the last couple of years, it's just it's phenomenal. It's, maybe it's the martial arts, <laughs> possibly. Flexi. <Yeah. laughs> but you know, I think a lot of it might be psychological, and he, he like. I literally think he believes the things he says. It's not just projection or anything. I actually think he's convinced that he is the greatest of all time and everybody is lucky to be in his presence. presence yeah. I know. We're all paying rent in his last hands world. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. I guess we can just finish off. So just I want to just talk about in France, some interesting uh things happening. Uh PSG lost the first game under Pochettino in quite remarkable fashion. And uh, Neymar lost the bet to Gabriel Jesus over the Copa Libertadores final. Uh, Neymar and Jesus had bet that, well, Neymar bet that Santos would beat Palmeiras in the final and uh, Jesus, who played for Palmeiras before joining Man City, bet that Palmeiras would win and Palmeiras won 1-0 with late goal. So Neymar is down to dinner. Um, but yeah, what, what, what do you think, John, about the situation in France and um, how PSG are progressing and also uh, the situation with Marseille down south where their game was called off because of uh, fan trouble? Yeah, the Marseille situation is absolutely nuts. It reminds me of uh, the sporting one last year where their where their ultras stormed their training centre because they weren't happy with the direction the club was going in. And uh, I, <laughs> I think if the rumours are true and Marseille might sell Coletta Carr uh, in this transfer deadline day, that, you know, that might even heighten those bad feelings and I'd be fairly nervous as a Marseille player <laughs> at the minute. Um, it's in, it would be a penny for Andre Villas-Boas's thoughts. Um, yeah. As for PSG, yeah, Pochettino's first defeat after uh, they scored two penalties in the game, but they were defeated three two. Um, yeah, maybe maybe no harm in the long run though that they can get maybe a bit of a, a little bit of a reality check, especially ahead of the uh, European uh, competitions. But I guess you know he'll probably say that he hasn't had enough time to really imbue his tactics onto his squad, and then they're going to there's going to be upsets like that until he can get his proper stamp on proceedings. Yeah, I think it's always tough coming in mid-season too, isn't it? Like it's a difficult, difficult task when you're a situation where a coach is kind of, you know, 
specific as Pochettino is, you could say. Um, but going, going back to Kaleda Carr, I actually won the Champions League with Marseille and Football Manager uh, a few years ago, and he was a star centre back for me. So I have fond memories of uh, Kaleda Carr. And um, what are your thoughts, Jasmine, on uh, all things French? Um, I didn't see the match. I didn't see Pochettino's loss, but it's um, someone who's probably more well versed in Ligue than I am. Um, wasn't Lauren like relegation zone? It just isn't like a pretty damning loss for them, or is it that they'll bounce back and everything is fine? Yeah, I don't know. I think it's just the situation where when you have a perfect record, you almost become fearful of losing that perfect record. Whereas when you lose the game, almost like what Liverpool happened, what happened with Liverpool and Burnley, when you lose that kind of perfect score, you could say, you've more freedom to be more kind of brave in your play because you're not protecting some sort of kind of crazy record anymore, you know? I, I feel like almost league and for them is kind of redundant given their run for the last few years and it's just like, give us a Champions League. So I still <laughs> like, I feel like with under Pochettino, especially with him getting Tottenham into the final, um, if it, that's the gun that they're going for rather than the, the league, and it's like, okay, if you lose that, well, let's see how you do in the Champions League. They came so close last season as well, and with again how unpredictable everything is at the moment, maybe that's what they've got him for rather than anything else. Yeah, certainly. I, I agree. I think as well, interesting comments from Poch during the week, he was talking about Sergio Ramos and Lionel Messi, talking in admiration of the board of them, both obviously free agents come the summer. But uh, but yeah, interesting to hear that his season pans out with PSG in Europe, especially, and also how he takes them forward in the next few seasons. But, uh, but yeah, that's all we have time for, for today. Thanks very much for joining me, Jasmine and John. Um, Jasmine, do you have anything you're kind of cooking up uh, writing wise you want to promote? Um, yeah, I will. I've been doing a few tactical pieces recently, and I'm looking to do one for Tottenham v Chelsea. It's basically on the whistle tactical pieces. You can find me at underscore Jasmine Barber on Twitter, and there's a link to my Medium page where it will be hosted in my bio. Sounds brilliant. I highly recommend those pieces. Very interesting and incisive. Uh, John, how about you? Yeah, I just also like to say that Jasmine's pieces are really good. I enjoyed the one she wrote about the four four two diamond that Liverpool played against West Ham yesterday. So I advise people to check those out. As for me, you can follow me at NotoriousJOS on Twitter. That's nothing got to do with Conor McGregor, by the way. That was my Bebo name way back when. So I claimed the main <laughs> over that. Wait, wait, so you actually had it, you had it before him. You, you were calling yourself yeah. Notorious before McGregor. Seriously? Yeah, Notorious, it was a play on Notorious B.I.G., so Notorious J.O.S., my initials. So uh, I've had that for God probably since like 2007 or eight before he was a thing, so to speak. You might beat him in a fight at this point. After he got his lights knocked off the last day, he might, you know, he might be a bit uh, fragile and I could take advantage. Um, <laughs> not to digress too much, though. Uh, you can follow me at Notorious JOS on Twitter. Um, I'm sure to write something about what Liverpool do in this deadline day. It looks like they might sign two defenders, so I'm sure to write some pieces on that. Should be intriguing. Looking forward to them. Really enjoyed the quite predictive Thiago piece you did. That almost maybe who knows? Maybe Klopp is reading it, and that's why he's changing his uh, his tactical. I would put in all that kind of thing. But, uh, but yeah, thanks very much for joining me, guys. For me, I'm at Aswell Feely on uh, Twitter. You can follow me there. A couple of pieces this week. Profile of Gerard Morano, the Villarreal striker, uh, aforementioned profile of Brian Hill, and also a couple of Squawker. 
scout pieces on Jules Koundé and Brian Hill as well so good few things going on there but listen guys thanks very much for joining me I really appreciate the conversation um, I hope you enjoyed our chat and if you did please remember to leave a rating and recommend it to a friend because it's a great way of growing the podcast but, uh, but yeah thanks guys and we'll see you next week bye